And I want to begin because we're, we're, uh, we're going to be through the whole book. Every time you, you, uh, you hear a teaching through this series, this is one of those books that has a very clear arc. And you can accidentally do injustice to understanding the text if you just start plucking out verses. So we'll both be going sequentially in some sense of making sure we're walking through the narrative. But we're going to keep coming back to the end and going back to the beginning and back to the end and back to the beginning. Because it's really important that we see the whole picture. But the text that we would have kicked off with this week, if we were going through this sequentially, was in Jonah 2, um, where we read the Lord commanded the fish, um, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Most people, when they think of the book of Jonah, this is the part of the story they think of. A couple verses about Jonah going down into the belly of a fish, saved by a fish. And so I just want to give like a sermon before the sermon on the fish bit. Instantly, the idea, I think, of someone being swallowed by a fish, or let me say the way we respond to this, um, is by some version of, for a lot of us, not all of us, is, is like a bit of a rolling of the eyes. Like, it is 2022. Have not, haven't we moved past the sort of magical and mythical thinking? Others have a very different response. If the Bible says a man was swallowed by a fish, then a man was swallowed by a fish. If you deny this story happened as the author says it happened, then what about all the other stories? If you deny this one, the whole thing falls apart. If you don't believe it literally happened, that's fine. Lots of people, let me be very clear before you walk out. Half of you walk out. Some of you are like relieved. Some of you are like, Meh. Lots and lots of people throughout church history have read this story as a parable about national forgiveness. Lots. Like St. Augustine. Like we can go through the church fathers and mothers all the way back to the beginning have read it. In part. Many of them. Not all. As a parable. They point to all the aspects of how surreal the story is. Right? It's phenomenal storytelling that like, puts in this larger point about the Israelites and the Assyrians and the call uh, to be a light to everyone and respect your enemies. Awesome. Some, though, deny the swallowed by a fish part, not from a literary perspective, not on the basis, right? It's been said we read the Bible literarily is a more helpful word than literally. Because the Bible doesn't come to us as an owner's manual. It comes to us as laments and songs and letters. All sorts. We take the Bible seriously. Really quick, if you're new and exploring our church, we regard the Bible as completely authoritative in every way. The word of God. But the way it comes to us is different. We read a psalm different than we read the Gospels. You do this intuitively. When we read a psalm, and then the psalmist towards the end of the beautiful psalm about God's love suddenly then goes, and will you throw my enemies to the jackals, and may the jackals devour them and tear them limb for limb. It's in the Bible. We all go, oh, well, well, you know, he's just really mad at his enemies. That's not a command. I shouldn't go find a jackal, bring it in, and then throw my enemy to them. We intuitively understand this, that there are different ways to understand different aspects. We read it literarily. I digress. Some people deny the swallowed by a fish part, not from a literary perspective, but on the basis of those things just don't happen. Which is not the best basis to avoid to do that. 
we know this by the Narragansett, was it Narragansett Bay, the guy who was swallowed by a fish for like better part of a day and made it out alive. Look that up. Real story. Crazy. <laughs> That's not a justification for the story of Jonah. P.S. <laughs> but here's my thing. What's the criteria for the denial? Do we only affirm things that can be proven in a lab? And do we only believe things that have empirical evidence for it? Do we believe or not believe something happened based on whether we believe that thing happens or not? Can we only affirm things that make sense to us? We know this, and the more that we've explored about subatomic particles and how big the world, the universe is, we have learned things about how weird the world is that would have sounded ridiculous 20 years ago. But now we know, like, certain particles can exist in two places at once. Are we shut off from a sort of openness to the world? That said, there are others who say, of course he was swallowed by a fish. That's what the story says. Fine, just one problem. It's possible to affirm the literal fact of a man being swallowed by a fish, making that somehow the point of the story, and do it in such a way and defend it and believe it and argue about it and spend a lot of energy with the defend the fish part and miss the whole point of the story. So what do I think? I'm not going to tell you. But I think it's important why we say of course or why we say no when we come to something like this in the story. Okay, sermon over. Chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2. Here, you can pull that right up on the screen. Jonah, at this point in the story, we're just going to pick right up where we left off. He has been invited by God to go and preach a message of warning, which is a message of mercy and grace to his worst enemy. Think of your worst enemy and just log it right in there. White supremacists, the Russian government, like just to speak of two live moments right now, that person, those people, this isn't like, oh, folks, we just agree to disagree with. These are like bona fide villains who have done some horrific acts in the ancient world, specifically to Jonah's people. He's been told to go there, and then he runs for it. I do not want to do that. I don't want to go to those people. I do not want to extend a message of grace and mercy. Not going. So we read last week, he gets, uh, he gets on a boat to flee to Tarshish, which is like ancient code for the ends of the earth and the opposite direction of where God invited you to go. On the boat, we have this weird scene where like the pagan sailors end up being the good guys, try to save his life. It basically comes out that the whole reason for this storm is basically Jonah. They don't want to throw him overboard, but they're like, look, dude, we're at our end. We tried to save you. This thing's going to fall apart. So Jonah's like, go ahead, throw me over. Literally the story. Go and read it. They throw him over, and then we get the fish. Fish sweeps up, sweeps up, swims up, grabs him whole. We don't have a blow-by-blow, play-by-play of what actually happens with the fish. But he's inside the fish. Inside, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. So apparently at some point he called to the Lord. We don't know this, other than the fact that he said he did. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. He's like, God, you banished me. I get it. 
The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. That last verse has been, man, the topic of so many commentaries and discussions, and we may go back to that at another time. But this prayer, this prayer is interesting. Where are you if you are thrown overboard, ultimately because of your disobedience to God, and find yourself in the belly of the beast of a fish for three days and three nights? Where are you? You're in the valley. Where are you? You're at the bottom. How many of you have ever been at the bottom? Has anyone tell you who's hit rock bottom before this is usually where God can get a hold of you not because he wasn't available on the boat and above the water it's likely because you were not available to God there's something that happens when you're at bottom anyone in recovery knows this it's actually like regarded as a sort of gift is it not something that happens you realize when you, when you realize you've hit bottom, you're like, I should be dead, and I'm not. In the case of Jonah, it's I should have had to deal with the consequences of the fact that I heard directly from God and then willfully disobeyed him, but I don't have to deal with the consequences. Has anyone ever not had to deal with the consequences of their actions? Anybody? You can throw it up. No one know what you did. <laughs> My hand's up here. You don't know what I did. I didn't have to deal with the consequences. Such mercy. Right? Those moments of great grace. In the place like this, you praise and you give thanks and you do what Jonah did. You make vows. You make vows. This prayer is like, thank you for saving me. I mean, I'm sure he's like, I think, because I'm still in the fish, so I'm assuming this is going to work out good. And then I'll do it, I promise. Jonah 2 ends, and into Jonah 3 ends with, then he goes and does the thing. He's running away from God. God, I do not want to go to those horrible people and give this message of grace and mercy. He runs. God wakes him up, shakes him up, sends a, a storm. He deserves to, like, be done. And God's like, I still want to use you. How many of you, is it good news that God still wants to use you, even though you are a jacked-up Jonah sometimes? It's good. Thank God I would not be your pastor anymore. It's good news. So, in the belly of the fish, I think one interpretation that I, I'm going to spare you really long quotes from a commentary, and I'm going to use the Andrew translation for a minute. I, I, I think this is his, his like toilet prayer. Anyone know I'm talking about the toilet prayer? Anyone ever been hung over before? This is church, we can be honest, right? I'm not saying I've ever been hung over before. 
Have you ever been in a moment where you're so sick and you're so sick because of silly decisions, stupid decisions you made, you find yourself talking on the big white phone, the toilet, to God. And you're like, God, I will never do that again. I will follow you all of my days. Just please make this stop. Anyone ever prayed that prayer? Come on. Some version, you know, <laughs> I'm preaching now. Some version of that prayer. Oh, I will never, I promise I'll never do that. I'll never look at that. If you would just make the consequences of this thing go away. Now, I am not going to pretend to climb into the heart and mind of Jonah. I know exactly what's going on. Be wary of any preacher who will. But there is something interesting that the commentators point out again and again and again through Jonah 2. Is there's some things that are omitted. Psalms that he's quoting in this prayer that he lops off parts. He doesn't sort of seem to own or count the cost of what he did. He seems to be genuinely grateful that he's been saved. And in light of that saving, he's like, it's back up on his horse. And he's like, let's do this. So I don't know if this psalm, this, this, this was included uh, to help us humanize us to Jonah. Because we're all like this, right? We've had moments where you're like, okay, I'm at my end. God, I promise I will follow you. And you genuinely mean it. I want to. And even if you could count the cost, you're still going to say, yeah, God, I want to keep following you and doing what you want to do. And I know I screwed this up, but I'm going to keep going. I want to move in the way of love and life and hope and joy in the way that you've called me to live, sacrificial love. I want that life. I'm going to get back on the horse so maybe this was just humanizing Jonah to us, but th there does seem to be a bit of, uh, well, again, a lack of being able to count the cost. In the case of Jonah, the cost he didn't count was the likely possibility that God actually wanted to bring mercy and grace to his most hated enemies. Jonah, remember, tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, why he ran. He says, when God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. So this is towards the end of the story. Jonah listens to God. He comes around again. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. And when he warns Nineveh that salvation comes only from God, you got to repent of all your horrible acts, Nineveh begins to change and respond well. When God saw that they did... And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring on Nineveh the destruction he had threatened. Then chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah is angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. In other words, this is why I made haste to flee. Or that is why I ran as fast as I could in the other direction. We have no confusion in this text why Jonah ran from God. He knew at the like, bottom of the bottom of the bottom of his consciousness, deep down, even after he's in the belly of the fish, he's like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Maybe hoping deep down, this is the only read I think we can get on this, hoping actually that maybe God really would bring wrath and justice upon all those people. And when he doesn't, he is like, I knew it. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God that relents from sending calamity. Now, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, those words might sound familiar. In Exodus 34, 16, we read this. This is what 
Jonah's quoting. He is throwing God's words about himself back in his face. Like, God, I knew it. In Exodus 34, 16, we read, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So this is a very common thing in the Jewish scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. You quote part of a verse, but you're inferring to the whole thing. This is what Jesus actually is doing on the cross when he says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He reads a part of it to, as to cue the rest of the psalm or the rest of the passage in the listener's ear. It's interesting, even in the words that he's throwing back at God, the ending of that is, you've maintained love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is what he's just done to Nineveh. This is God's beautiful announcement to Moses about the nature of who he is, and Jonah throws it back in his face. So we know at the end of Jonah, at the climax of the story, that his pain and his anger and his sense of what is deserved puts him in a place where he can't celebrate something good and beautiful happening to someone who does not deserve it. You tracking with me? At the end of Jonah, he is sitting there angry that God has shown mercy to those people who have caused him and his people in the world so much harm. All of this, folks, makes chapter 2 so interesting. Why this prayer? Are we supposed to, again, feel favorable towards Jonah? It definitely reminds me of the times I've been thankful for God's mercy and in light of that mercy, sincerely wanted to do the right thing and still falling short. Jonah runs. God gets a hold of him through the storm with the sailors and the whole fish bit, and Jonah says, thank you, though he doesn't quite own up to running. And then he gets back on the right track, does what God tells him to do, but he can't enjoy the beauty of what God is doing through him. He can't enjoy being obedient. He completes his mission. Some people like to like talk about this book or preach this book like it's a book about disobedience. Part of it is. But at the very end of the story, please hear this if you hear nothing else today. Jonah obeys. He actually does the thing and God accomplishes his mission where the city of Nineveh goes, all right, we're going to listen to you, Jonah. But Jonah can't enjoy it, can't celebrate it, can't see it, can't rejoice in it. He's just angry. He's furious at God's infuriating love. So we read in, in chapter 4, he's so mad that he says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You it's like God saying this, or Jonah saying this, you using me to show mercy to those people, and those, respond, those people responding rightly to that mercy, the, the fact that they might actually prosper, that they might make it, that their story, those people's story, your enemy's story might not be over, the image there is so unsettling and horrible. That this has just happened. It's like you get Jonah just going like, nope, 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 kill me now. Nope, nope, kill me now. Oh my gosh. How many of you have ever had a Jonah moment while watching your worst enemy or those people actually flourish? 
How many of you have had that moment where you're like, I, I know I should forgive, and I've forgiven them in my heart, but not really in any other part of my body? Like, yeah, when those people, when actually their story isn't over, actually God might still do something with them. It reminds me of the old line, I remember who said it, about um, Paul, you know, in the heat of, this actually works so well today with the recent terrorist attack. It's like, if you don't think God can redeem even a terrorist, you have to throw out half the New Testament because that's exactly what Paul was, killing Christians and ends up being used by God to pen half of the New Testament. Ah, the story's not over. He rejoices. He, I mean, Jonah just is trying to rejoice in their potential suffering and ache, hoping God will actually destroy them. Guys, this story is so good. This is such a good story, that's all. This book is trying to mess with you. It asks us, are you okay with the fact that God loves those people? It holds up a mirror to you, the reader, and says, let me show you your true character as I show you mine. Because when God reveals his character, it will reveal what's in you. Jonah is faithful, but doesn't experience the blessing because why? Let's, let's think for a minute. Why? Maybe because there's pain in his heart. There's hurt. He's, he's furious that those people are going to get a pass. So what do we do with that? I don't know Jonah's motives. I don't know what's in there, but clearly it's not good. How has Jonah responded to the invitation to extend mercy to a group of people who've harmed his world? He runs. He's gotten angry. And then he freezes. It's fascinating. These are the three normal like psychological effects when you are hurt, fight, freeze, or flee. We see some version of all three of these in the book of Jonah. What do you do when you are hurt? So here are my questions. Ready? How do we respond to God's invitation to lead better than Jonah did? How do I take my pain and bring it to God and allow him to transform it so I don't miss out on the beauty and joy of following him? How do I allow the hurt and evil around me to be absorbed rather than transmitted back onto God or onto other people that I'm called to love? How do I keep my hurt and my sense of justice and fairness from crowding out the joy and freedom of God's good and perfect will, his good and perfect love? Because ultimately the question isn't how do you get through life without being hurt? The question is, when you are hurt, how will you deal with it? Are we all aware of this? I shouldn't need to explain this to too many, but there's probably a few who are like, yeah, I don't know. All of life is hurt. Things have been okay. Just wait a little longer. You're probably 12. Like, literally. That wasn't an insult. Like, you're probably 12 years old. James Baldwin, famous writer, writes this. Um, in light of all that was happening in the civil rights movement, he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Let me read that again. 
I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their pain. There is an ancient phrase in the tradition of Christianity in the way of Jesus called participating in the sufferings of Christ. This idea that when we align ourselves in the brokenness of the world that God says we'll be there because God is a God of love and God, that love requires a choice and choice means we will not always choose life but we will choose death and so we will see hurt and brokenness. That wounds are a part of the deal. Wounds are a part of the deal. And for all of you, I just want to take a minute to talk to the followers of Jesus in the room, even more so the leaders and the people who are all in and part of the family here. A common phrase in this moment is we all experience the hurt and pain is, man, I didn't sign up for this. And I would humbly submit as a part of this family and a leader in this church, you actually did, even if it was in the fine print. We did sign up for this. We did sign up for this. We see, we see throughout the scriptures this invitation to be honest with how hard life is. I want to read a bunch of passages to you. This is, I want to pivot over to the Paul who is a leader and is talking about the hurt and pain and wounds that he has experienced. Can you bring this up, Britt? We read in 1 Corinthians, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through him. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share, he's talking to a church, as you guys share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experience in the province of Asia. We don't want you to be uninformed by the troubles of this world. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in the answer to the prayers of many. You have Paul, leader in the church, acknowledging there was some physical pain, but oppression and things that were happening to them, scandal around them, people accusing them of so much, pain and hurt coming from their enemies. He's trying to say, look, our stories are wrapped up here and don't be surprised when this stuff comes. All right, let's move on. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. Again, he's connecting their stories. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. 
We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as humans. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. He continues to connect their stories together. We read in chapter 4, verse 7, For we have this treasure, this presence and power of God in jars of clay in our broken humanity. To show us that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then listen to this description. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck nad, but not destroyed. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Anybody? Youth group. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that life... The life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It goes on in verse 12. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He goes, I have worked much harder and been in prison more frequently and been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. The dude's been hurt. If you're like, man, I lost you in all that scripture. Paul, leader to the church, been really hurt. Again and again and again. He's trying to help them realize, look, our stories are wrapped up in this together. God's going to do something through it. He then goes on a list of all the ways that he's labored and toiled and been hurt. And then in verse 28 says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. My grace, then he says in verse 12, verse 8. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wounds are a part of the deal. Not only is Paul in these passages honest about how hard it's been, he seems to be saying that leadership, that being the true and better Jonah is a form actually of suffering. We absorb so life and healing and blessing can actually flow through us. This was the, always the role of the prophets. This is a holy task of the faithful and healthy Jonah. And it is a calling for every follower of Jesus. We read Jesus took it all on himself. His body became a graveyard for hate. Jesus took up our shame and our suffering. He pierced for us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. This is what it will take to actually heal the world and yours. Suffering love and a sacrificial heart. If we face our pain with Jesus, if we come to peace with it, the unique gift that we bring to our world is our woundedness, is our hurt. God will likely use your wounds more than anything else, which sucks. But that's where the power is. As we continue to be wounded from others or self-inflicted wounds, we have to know what to do with them. So I want to offer a few thoughts to you. What do we do so we don't miss out like Jonah did? We can even be dutiful and obedient and still miss out on the joy. He is literally, if he had an opportunity, he was transmitting all that pain and hurt he had, hurt, he had experienced, was putting that back onto God and putting that back onto others. So first, if you're taking notes, one, you got to find meaning in your pain. 
We suffer for healing to come to others. That's pretty good. Nothing will expose your pain like coming face to face with leadership and the things that God's call you to. All your sin will come to the surface. Parker Palmer says this, a leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside him or herself, inside his or her consciousness, lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. Here's another way to say that. The greatest threat to your friendships and your leadership and your home church and your work environment as a follower of Jesus, the greatest threat is you. Because you're going to get hurt and you're going to get wounded and what are you going to do with it? Are we going to walk in faith and joy and beauty and freedom and not transmit that stuff back on to people? Now, no, not just the greatest threat, the greatest gift also to those spaces is you. Paul reminds of them in that in Ephesians 4. Paul calls leaders God's gift. The best gift that we can give each other and the best gift we can give our friendships is our transformed self. Ministry is not so much about what we do, but who we are. Jonah eventually did the thing, but his vision of God was so distorted. And it seems as though he had so much pain that was undealt with. He could not see and understand God's beauty. The meaning and purpose behind our wounding is that it will heal and mature us and allow us to be able to actually lead others. If the meaning of life is the healing of our souls through loving union with God, then being hurt and wounding is actually a hidden gift that if we let it will lead us to maturity. You follow? This will lead us to maturity, actually, your wounds, if you let it. Number two, find loving, safe relationships to discharge the pain and heal. So as a pastor, I I was, you know, always told about the beauty of seminary and and it will prepare you to do ministry, which is a mixed bag on that. But uh, Parker, (laughs) Ronald Rollheiser says, um, what seminary won't do is um, it'll prepare you to do the ministry, but it will not prepare you what ministry will do to you. (laughs) And so a a friend of mine was uh, asking um, this sage in the faith. It's like, look, I'm trying to learn how to better in this moment bless people who hurt me. It's like every time I go to pray for them, it ends up causing more pain and triggering all of this, and I just ruminate on it and think of all the ways that this person has just hurt me and shamed me and all of this. And so Ronald Rollheiser said this, and I'm going to temper this in a second, but just let it land. He goes, well, of course you pray for them, but also do you drink alcohol? None of you laughed. I thought it was really funny. (laughs) It's like, just from a sage in the faith, his point was not like, go drink. His point was like, do you have people that you can actually ruminate with, that you can commiserate with? Do you have people that you can discharge your pain to where it's not gossip, it's actually helpful processing? I.e., they need to be followers of Jesus who are mature and helping you lean into the character and beauty of who God is. You have to have people who will help you absorb the pain. When Jesus was in the garden, he needed his friends. We have to find the way to let the pain pass through us so we don't, trans- so we don't transmit it onto other people. When people hurt you, that pain 
will want to be transmitted onto everyone else, like Jonah even transmitted onto God himself. We have to find a healthy place and people and community. This is the withward direction. You can't follow Jesus alone. Some people genuinely try. They agree with that idea, and there's no one in their life who knows what the heck is going on in their heart. No one in their life knows how much hatred they hold on to or bitterness they hold on to or the brokenness there. We need people who we can be honest with. Number three, find solace in walking with Jesus. This is a really simple and ancient practice. A year back, um, someone posted something online really horrible and untrue about our church and our leadership and ultimately me. I felt everything you might think I might feel. Shame and anger, misunderstood by the very people that I had bled for. Above all the things I felt was betrayal. I felt betrayed. And then the question just simply kind of came to me through a friend, combination point two and three, bonus. They just reminded me, like, did anything, any way that you're feeling now, did Jesus ever feel that way? I was like, yep, multiple times. Jesus is betrayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas, his friend, betraying him. Where has Jesus walked this path before? Where has Jesus walked this path before? This is what it is to simply find solace in walking with him. Look, it will transform your prayer life. It sounds so simple, but it will bring a healing balm to your wounds. To go, I, I've walked, I'm walking where other saints have walked. I've been down this road before. Jonah had an opportunity to do that. This is the God's MO with prophets. Like, go to those people who aren't in the in club and proclaim my mercy. It is the whole mission statement of the entire Hebrew people in the Old Testament. You are blessed by me, sent by me to be a blessing for those people. It's the whole bag. You literally can't understand a lick of the Old Testament without being able to palm Genesis 12. Go Celtics. Lastly, find comfort in God in prayer. Prayer must be a lifeline. We need to pray the Psalms. Allow those Psalms about the jackals to actually come home. I never understood those. They're called imprecatory Psalms. I never understood those things until I went through some stuff. Anyone ever been like tempted to actually be like, Lord, would you please send Mr. Smith to the jackals, please? Come on. You're just, I'm done. I mean, how could that not be the prayer right now in Buffalo, in that community? How long, Lord? Might that kid find himself in the pit? We need people when we are wounded to find comfort in prayer. And the Psalms, the Bible, help us actually get there. We don't need to be scared of that stuff, but we need to know what to do with it. We don't just start ranting off and going on rampages and taking to social media and losing our mind in our rage. No, we're honest about what's there and then allow God to heal it. This is what we read in all of those verses that we just went through. Paul in 1 Corinthians. When the wounds come, we have to resist any place to go to other than the secret place. We have to go to God. Look. When we own that wounds are a part of the deal, 
we can make room to bring healing into our world. He says we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, the crucifixion. We always carry around in our body an execution moment, the ultimate pain that you could cause somebody so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Death is at work. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Henry Nouwen says, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. Jonah is an invitation to be open and humble and vulnerable before the Lord. So, for you, what needs to be transformed so it's not transmitted? What pain and ache, betrayal and loss and lie needs to be transformed so it is not transmitted, so you can stay vulnerable? Where do you need a community or comfort in prayer? Or solidarity with Christ. Where? What things are you afraid of? Where are you afraid of being wounded? We read in Revelation, I hold the keys to death and Hades. Be not afraid. All of our worst fears, if we don't need to fear death and hell, then you don't need to be afraid of the wounds that are coming of the pain and the betrayal that will come from those people. At the end of the day, part of this isn't even about those people. Nineveh responds well, and God's purposes get through. That happens more often than not. One of the big questions of Jonah is, will you be awake, alive, alert of the true God to actually see it? to enjoy it, to be free. And so when God pours out mercy and grace on the person or persons or people that caused you that pain, when you realize just how much he loves them, just how much he is patient with them, my gosh, let it not lead to a weird, bitter anger, but might it lead to love and freedom and joy. Let me say this, it will bring out the Mr. Rogers in you. He was a pastor, St. Mr. Rogers is a real saint in our church. It will bring out the kindness in you. How many of you are just like so tired of being judgmental and hardened and cynical? You've been like judging me through this whole sermon for every little joke that was off color. <laughs> Someone's like, amen. Amen, they're off color and bad or amen, you got convicted, I don't know. <laughs> What an opportunity for us, church, today as we close, as we come to the table and just take a minute to pray, to just be vulnerable and ask, Lord, is there anything? Are there some people, are there those people out there? Am I carrying around this bitterness and anger and rage? I just need to let it go. And I know that's not a one and done thing. And some of you, like therapy is like a good move you need to do. You need to set up a pastoral call with one of our leaders. You need to begin this process of doing this. But it has to begin somewhere, start somewhere. And what God, sometimes it does take a whole season. God can actually also do in a minute. And we believe in miracles. So are you willing in this moment to surrender yourself to that? 
to this kind and gracious and compassionate love, not just for those people, but for even you who are carrying around bitterness and rage and disappointment and pain and allow God to just cover us. So we're going to sing in a minute like 16 versions of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Just like, oh, like how many different ways can we sing this song just to beat this into our head? All these pieces broken and scattered. Lord, would you heal? Amazing grace. Twas grace that taught my heart. Twas grace that moved me. Grace will lead me home. Because that's what we see at the table. Christ's body broken for us. This unbelievable act of love and forgiveness. While you are still sinners, while you are still enraged, while you are still in rebellion, he died for you. He died for me. And at the table, he broke open as he's sitting with his disciples before going to the cross. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he eats. And he takes the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a revelation of who I am. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he drinks. And he invites his disciples to drink. And in that moment, we taste and smell and see again the grace that is ours to behold. And so, as we often do, we're going to take a moment, whether it's on our knees, whether it's coming to the altar and standing back as people come by, whether it's going to be prayed for and you have some things you need to confess, whether it's coming forward and just kneeling. You can kneel in the corners, let people walk by you, just to name some things, own some things, to allow God's love to make us vulnerable in this space and to bring healing to us. We don't want to miss it. So would you stand with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, Jonas. Jonas, who forget that you would use us even in our disobedience. Jonas, who don't refuse to accept just how big and wide, how deep and how long your love is for everybody. Forgive us, Jonas, for not bringing our pain before you before our community and allowing you to transform our hurt. So I pray, Lord, you would do something right now so miraculous at the communion table that we would see chains broken off. I'm like looking out of this room. This isn't arbitrary. I'm not preaching to some like random group of people. I know for a fact there's some folks in this, world, this room who are carrying such bitterness and such anger and such frustration because of what has been done to them. And it's real and it's hard and it's okay, but it's time to begin the journey to let it go. Let it go. Bring it before him. He's good and faithful. You don't want to miss out. Bitterness will cause us to miss out, Lord, and we don't want to be bitter. Anger will cause us to miss out. That broken, unrighteous anger will cause us to miss out, Lord. We don't want to miss out. Open our hearts to your kindness, which we know leads us to that repentance, that turning around. And walking in greater freedom and truth. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. If you're comfortable praying that prayer under your lips or like under your breath right now, would you just pray, Holy Spirit, come. Only if you're okay with that. It's a big prayer. Holy Spirit, come. Move in my heart. Holy Spirit, come.
Amen. Church, let's come up this center aisle. Take the bread and dip it in the cup. If you want to stand or sit in the front, just step back on this first pew and you can just stand there with our arms open and sing. If you want to grab a corner to kneel in, our prayer team is over here. And then one of our communion folks will actually head upstairs to the balcony to serve you guys once people have gone through. And let's take these last few minutes together and allow God to speak. Would you come?